Today on The Black Goat, we talk about conflicts of interest that we encounter as researchers. What are they and how should we handle them? And a letter about helping undergrads develop their research interests. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. Uh, my name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullett and Samin Vizier. And we were talking before we started recording, and we realized that we got new artwork for the podcast, and we announced it in our social media, but we haven't actually said anything on the podcast itself. But we got a new goat. Yeah. <laughs> um, we got a, a new logo designed by my roommate, Jude Weaver. Um, which I'm pretty excited about uh, because uh, while I often get to see Jude's art, I don't usually get to like have it designed specifically for me. Um, so that was pretty cool. Yeah, that's really yeah, nice that's awesome. Mm-hmm. It was really nice. Uh, yeah, because the, the our old logo, which I didn't dislike, but you know, it was. I mean, when we were starting the podcast, like I literally went and searched for public domain goat. <laughs> pictures and and found that one and so we don't even know who the artist is who created it it was in the, you know it was one of these like public domain stock photo things um but now we have our very own goat designed and and jude is an artist right like this this w- isn't just like a thing a one-off thing she yes. actually is an artist a bona fide she, artist which is she awesome. is the most artisty person i have ever met <laughs> she has an artistic profession and then she comes home and then she makes some more art <laughs> you mean like so what's the i mean this is so interesting to me because i don't uh um i don't live with an actual professional artist like what's the distinction between the art that she creates for professionally and then the art she creates at home uh, well, in her case, there's a very clear distinction because she works for like a, um, I don't know if I'm using this word right, like a graphic design or uh, some kind of design company. Um, so the the company is called Swag and they do a lot of like wedding invitations and sorority t-shirts and football t-shirts and stuff like that. Um, so Jude spends her like days doing like this sort of like basic Tuscaloosa art and then at mm-hmm. night she like makes her own art for fun okay that's awesome my, my friend Joanne who you guys probably know Joanne Chung also does art in her spare time and I think like of the caliber that I would think is I don't know I don't know what makes someone an artist but in my mind she's definitely an artist and I remember like I went to a museum with her and some other people once and I'm not a huge fan of museums and like the best way I could express it was like it makes no sense to me why that art is in a museum and your art isn't. And she was like, that's so nice. And I'm like, I do mean it in the nice way, but also like, what the fuck is up with museums? <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like when I look at her art, it's so amazing to me. And I don't understand why not only is it not in a museum, it's not like for sale. It's not, you know, like I don't get it. Like, I can't tell the yeah. difference and maybe there isn't a difference and she's just that good and that's the answer which I think is plausible it, I mean does she try to sell it like is it just like I she think she I'm not sure if she has in the past yeah I mean that's definitely part of the reason now yeah mm-hmm. yeah I mean I, I feel yeah kind of similar in that like I I know that in you know in the art world there's 
not only sort of expertise involved, but also just like a lot of art sort of speaks to other art in, mm -hmm. in a way that I understand a little bit better in music, how like a piece of music that might have been created at a certain point of history, what it means in that context and whatever is mm -hmm. part of understanding it. But that's that that's at that level of abstraction. Like I don't really understand the particulars. Um, but yeah, like I uh, I have a friend from high school actually who um, is an artist, and she creates really cool. Her name is Kate Hester, and she creates really cool art using black masking tape. Um, and she posts pictures of it online, and and it's super cool and she you know this she is an artist like that is that is a thing she does and it and and you know she has other another job too but um she does that and it was really cool because we I, I haven't bought a lot of original art in my life which I feel like I should because I've kind of it's really cool to have original art and and mm -hmm. you know um I, I sort of like the idea of supporting an actual working artist rather than like you know getting a you know, a reproduction of a Monet or something like that. Um, but for uh, um, for our anniversary, Kristen got, uh, um, without telling me, like, went, because she knew I really admired Kate's work, um, sent Kate a photo and, and commissioned, got a commission of a photo of my family that Kate created. And so it's now, it's like my favorite thing in my house. It's hanging in our bedroom and, and it's this picture that I love that she turned into um, this piece of art, which is amazing. And so now I'm like, I should get more actual art because that is so cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I used to buy more art at art fairs. Like I had a boyfriend in the past who had friends who were artists who would um, sell at art fairs and stuff. And so it was really fun to go with them and then you'd hear also the gossip about the artists and the politics yeah. of the art fair and all that. Um, but yeah, it was really, it was really fun to buy art. But although, I mean, Kristen's um, strategy is a really good one, but I find buying art for other people generally to be like impossible. Like I would, I, you just can't, I don't know. It's so subjective and so hard to predict what other people would like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in this case it was, yeah, it was yeah, because it was she knew. You, yeah. You liked it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it would have been really hard. I think it would be really hard to do that for yeah for someone you don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting know. that you mentioned your ex boyfriend Simeon because I was thinking about him also because I remember being in St. Louis with you once and we were in uh, I don't remember some kind of store, and I was debating whether or not to buy like this like ceramic thing, um, and he was like, always just buy it. If it's like art, you should just buy it. <laughs> he was like, you're not going to regret it. He probably made like, like three times as much money as you did at the time. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, I definitely can't follow that rule because, I mean, often art is like quite expensive. Um, mm. But I also do hear him in my mind often in those situations because like, I do think it's a good way to spend money and... I want to support people who are artists, and I have a lot of friends who are artists, and I want to support them. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have I still... friends like Joanne who I would definitely pay for her art. Like, if she would make me something I could put on my wall, I would pay for it for sure. I had another friend in St. Louis who she since passed away, but she also made art, and I was always, like, trying to ask her if I could buy some of it because she made so much of it and would give it away, and I'm like, I would pay for this. Um, I ended up putting her work on the cover of the Handbook of Self-Knowledge, which I was pretty happy about, and she got a little bit of mm -hmm. money for that. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I I mean, I, I think one of the cool things about the fact that there are so many artists who don't necessarily do it for a living, but who are really, really good, is that like you can get really good art without having to pay 
necessarily the prices for the art that everyone else knows about and wants and whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, I still want to pay them for their work. But. Yeah, yeah. The the idea of like that there are people creating amazing things that it's not the the gallery stuff or whatever, mm-hmm, yeah. but that yeah that you can support that instead of yeah. I don't know. Uh, Alexa, do you have because like you and Jude, you know, you live with an artist. Do you have a lot of original art? in your home space or Hell yes. do you, do you ha- hang up Monet prints <laughs> to just like taunt all your friends? Like, <laughs> it, Well, it depends on exactly what you mean. I, I still probably don't buy as much art from my friends as I should. Like I, sh- I guess I should buy art from Jude that never occurred to, well, it sometimes does, <laughs> but like it's all in my house anyway. So, um, but really like my house is full of art that Jude is working on. So there are mm-hmm. probably like right now in the living room, I would say 30 paintings that she's done on these like uh, thin wood panels. Um, so it's just like my house is like, uh, parts of it are like an artist's studio. My mom's oh, that's really And cool. then there's like other corners that are like spare and there's nothing <laughs> in them and that's where I live. <laughs> <laughs> my mom also, she started taking painting classes and so there's like 30 pieces that she's either working yeah, on or finished yeah, in her right. house. It's like that. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, cool. Should we? Well, we should definitely. I, I think we now, every time, link to Jude's Instagram in the show notes. Um, if oh, not, cool. I'll make sure to add a link. But I think we we sort of added that to our standard thing. Who created our art? So if people listening want to check out the work of Jude Weaver, who created our new logo, um, you can check that out in the show notes. Yeah, do it. Yeah, cool. Should we read our letter? Mm-hmm. Let's read our letter. All, All right. right. Hello. I am a current PhD student and have a dilemma in terms of mentoring undergraduate research assistants. I was curious about an aspiring undergraduate RA's research interests, and he told me about a couple of his ideas. After he described them to me, it seemed pretty apparent that he had not read any of the literature. I encouraged the RA to try and develop research questions from empirical literature rather than exclusively developing research ideas from personal experience. However, the RA seemed to be upset and disappointed at my advice. I'm not sure if I'm in the wrong here, as I don't want to be discouraging to developing researchers, and I know their ideas are still in development. However, I do have some qualms with people leaning too heavily upon personal anecdotes or personal experience for research ideas rather than developing research inspiration from the literature. What do you all think? Are undergraduate research assistants early enough in their career that you should allow them to develop their ideas however they would like without pushing back? Or is it reasonable to encourage them to develop their ideas from empirical literature rather than just personal experience, even if it might disappoint them? Best, a tough love type mentor, I guess. Um, So my first impression reading this letter is kind of that there are two related questions. Um, And one is about how much we should rely on personal experience versus the past literature when we develop our research questions. Um, And the other is how willing you should be to um, treat your RAs with tough love, I guess. I would break that first question up into two. So one is like how much we should rely on personal experience. And if we shouldn't just rely on personal experience, then what else should we rely on? Because I don't think the past literature is the only other thing we could use. Yeah, good point. So this is actually three questions. (laughs) Wait, I, I feel like I need to split it into a fourth now <laughs> since we're, we're we're doing mitosis on the question. Um, yeah, I think the and and the 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 
maybe a distinction to be made is between like choosing a research topic or area or phenomenon versus like formulating a research question. Mm. And I, you know, um, and, and, and that distinction gets a little fuzzy at some points, but I, you know, I think like if someone says I'm interested in studying depression or I'm interested in studying, you know, individual differences in Machiavellianism or, you know, whatever, that's one thing. And I, you know, and, and I kind of feel like, yeah, like people should be able to decide what they're interested in. But I, I kind of got the vibe from the letter that it's more, it's about research questions. It's not just like, I want to work in this area, but it's yeah, like, right. this is the question I want to answer in my research. And I, I know, like in my own experience, I've, I've really gone through an evolution. Cause I think when I started as an early faculty member, I really wanted to, let students and to try to create conditions for students to develop their own research questions. So when I taught an upper division motivation and emotion class, when I started out, the term paper was to like design a to write a like 10 page paper where you, this is just uh, like, I have to laugh thinking back on this because how ambitious this was to ask undergraduates to do this, but like come up with your own research question. It can be anything in the domain of motivation and emotion um, design a study, write a 10 page proposal back, you know, it was just, God, they struggled so much. And over the years I would sort of like narrow down the, the assignment and there were always like one or two students who could kind of handle it or maybe a few more than that. But, um, it's just, uh, what I realized is that it wasn't, and I think initially I was like, God, these students, they can't blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, and I, I came, I came totally around as like, what am I thinking, like asking them to do something that like I and everybody else collectively have not yet prepared them to be able to do, which is, and, and students would do things like they would take things from personal experience and it would be like, I wonder if, and it, they would be really sort of naive questions. There would be mm -hmm. simplistic questions. There would be questions that were, already asked and answered in the literature or questions that were conceptually confused about things and whatever. And in retrospect, it was like, well, of course, they didn't have the background to, to do what I was asking them to do. Um, and so, so that really sort of changed my view. And, and I had a similar trajectory with honors students where at first I'd be like, you just tell me what you want to study and I'll help you study. <laughs> now I'm mm -hmm. like, you know, if you really want to study something, I'll work with you and see if we can figure it out. But my default is like work, like find a, a way to sort of do something creative built on top of something we're already doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the... I think that um, in some ways I identify with this uh, undergrad that our letter writer is writing about um, because I do think that there's something to be said for coming up with research questions from personal experience. So um, I think we tend to be like a little bit more invested in them and I think um, it's often the case that a question that you might come up with from your personal experience hasn't been satisfactorily answered. I think the problem is when you do that without knowing the literature. So I would say like, if you come up with a question from personal experience, but then you like really go into the literature and see what has been done. Um, and I also think that there are cons of relying purely on the literature to develop your questions. Like, I think it can sort of like make you a little bit 
narrow-minded and sort of like lose sight of the broader relevance of what you're working on. Um, so, but I think that you're right, Sanjay, that m probably more what the letter writer is talking about here is just like sort of coming up with something without any idea of how it fits into like the context of what has been done or um, what can be done and what's feasible and those kinds of things. And yeah, then I've certainly had RAs and students come to me with um, research questions that I just sort of was like, try again. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I mean, I, that happens with me and my grad students all the time, and I yeah, hope same. I convey to them that's completely normal. I mean, not that I'm the authority, and if I say try again, then I'm right and they're wrong, but just that, like, most of the research ideas I come up with are crap or, like, not impossible or whatever, already been done, whatever, you know, name mm -hmm. the many reasons why it might not be worth doing. So, like, I, yeah, I, I really resonate. Well, actually, both of you with different points you made, like Sanjay, with the idea that it's just not a realistic expectation to have of undergrads. I had a meeting yesterday with an undergrad who is eligible to do an honors thesis, and she was meeting with me about whether she should do one, and she was really on the fence. And I was like, you know, I kind of don't think honors theses are a good idea. It's, like, kind of unrealistic to expect an undergrad in a year to design, execute, analyze, and write up a study, like, even for a grad student, that's really hard in a year and they get a lot more support than an undergrad typically gets. And she was so relieved and she was like, oh, I felt like because I'm eligible, like I should and I have to and blah, blah, blah. And, and I was like, look, I'm not trying to like talk you out of it and you should talk to other professors. But like, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of setting you up for either a lot of stress or failure or both or... Um, so yeah, I think like having undergrads work on a piece of a project where they can still have some intellectual contribution and so on, but with a lot more structure is better. And even for early grad students, I think that's often really good. But when it comes to like, yeah, research interests, I love the like free flowing personal experience, blah, 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 like what, yeah, what are you passionate about and so on. I mean, I'm really guilty of that. Like I study self-knowledge because I'm fascinated by, yeah, from personal experience. Um, and I also agree with what you said, Alexa, that like if you're too much focusing on the literature and you derive your specific study from the literature, then I feel like that's often a propagating bad methods. Like if you're using a manipulation that isn't good mm -hmm. or whatever, it's just, but it's used by everybody who studies this topic. And B, yeah, like I think there's all this open space where there isn't much literature. And yeah, it's harder to like develop good methods and so on. So there's a lot more background work to do. But, um, but it's often really exciting to work in those areas. I really like that more than working in really crowded spaces. So yeah, I think it's complicated. And for undergrads, the answer is probably like, let them explore their interests. But like, if you're asking them to design a study, you know, keep your expectations low and yeah, they should probably read the literature, but also encourage them to be creative and think outside the box and not just do what everyone else is doing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, to the, it sounds like the, the letter writer does have a question about like, how you handle this kind of thing with um, yeah. an RA and how you try to not be discouraging. And I think your points, I mean, about like creating a norm where it's like, yeah, you're going to come up with uh, several ideas that are probably not great and you're going to have to try again. Like, I think that norm is important um, because I do think that it, you can waste a lot of time if you just sort of let people pursue, like let undergrads pursue whatever ideas they come up with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's something I struggle I with think, with grad students a lot. Mm -hmm. Me too. Yeah, I think knowing, I think there's a difference between 
sort of feeling like you have to stay within or build on or whatever, being constrained by the existing literature and, and just knowing it. So, mm-hmm. you know, from, from the letter, the, the letter writer was thinking of literature that's relevant. So, so it's not, you know, there, there's stuff that's relevant and, and th- that the student wasn't aware of. And that I think maybe one way to approach it is like if the student, you know, if you, if this, they say, I want to come and I want to answer this question. And you're like, well, there's this and there's this and there's this. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to like not do it because it feels like it's been done before, that they have to do it in the same way everyone else is doing it. But I think being aware of when you're doing it differently and including like if, okay, if people have already done something related, being able to critique it and then yeah. sort of, you know, is, is that's good. And, and just sort of like stumbling into, well, I'm just going to frame this the way I want to. And, and, you know, and a lot of times, like if it's new territory, you can't get to the interesting question right away because you have to do basic, yeah. you know, how do you create measurements and how do you, you know, deal with the sort of like the, the first level of descriptive work before you can get to the really cool, you know, whatever you have in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know. Do you, have you guys heard the, the, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, the, this saying, study the world, not the literature. Mm-hmm. Mm. Not in those words, but yeah. Yeah, I, I've, I've seen it, people, um, I've seen it in, in social media, and I have, I have very, and, and it always gets like a rah-rah from people when mm-hmm. someone sort of posts it. And I have such mixed feelings about it, because I think the really good part of it is to like keep your eyes on what matters and yeah. and you know that's in the sense of like study the world not the literature just doing something because it's responding to something in the literature well well doesn't matter is is there something real and important at stake but i i do feel like there's a a way in which people even like in psychology you know do that that works against cumulative science like i'm trying to imagine mm-hmm. if you said study the world not the literature to a cell biologist or to a chemist or to a you know um, geoscientist or something like that um it's like well there's stuff out there you have to yeah like, in a way be, it's a sign that you don't have a on. lot of faith in the literature if you're saying that which is part of what why it resonates with me yeah. is like you know if right. i want to study if, like so this is kind of getting off topic from the letter but one thing i try to do but i have a really hard time keeping seeing the forest for the trees is when i read a paper at the end of the intro, pause and ask myself, okay, this is an interesting question. Most of the time I think it's an interesting question. I find almost everything interesting. How would I test it? Like what would be, you know, the ideal way to test it in a perfect world with unlimited resources, but also it would be like a more realistic, practical way to test it so that I have a benchmark in mind when I read what they actually did. Because otherwise I so often just take for granted, oh yeah, of course you manipulated this this way and then you measured this. And I forget, does this, I forget to ask myself, like, does this actually link up to the like world related research question that you started with it's so easy to get sucked into that and and forget to take a step back and ask yourself that question so like if you were working in a literature where there is a strong link and you know people are using ecologically valid methods and really getting pretty close to the constructs they want to measure and so on then then yeah like build on the literature but i could imagine a topic where it's just become the norm to study it in this really contrived way mm-hmm. and you want to start from scratch and do it completely differently but then yeah you have to do the validity stuff and yeah well and i think maybe that that actually uh, that feels like that really does address the letter in a lot of ways which is that 
I think you can direct students to the literature with in that spirit, like read the literature in that way. So if the student is coming to you and they've got their big question and how they're defining the important terms and constructs is different than everyone else's and how the paradigm they want to use is different and all these other things, they going and reading the literature doesn't necessarily mean that you have to view the literature as shooting all that down, um, but that you can you can take the, the student can take what they're thinking and take the, what the literature has done already, and you know sometimes the resolution is going to be like oh there's this thing that I didn't know that I can learn from, and sometimes the resolution is going to be like this way that I'm thinking about it nobody else has thought about it this way before mm-hmm. and 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 I can actually do something that the literature hasn't done yeah and so so teaching you know not presenting the literature as like it's been done before or it shoots down your idea but rather as like you got to you have to go read this and understand it and then reconcile your thinking with it mm-hmm. and the reconciliation can go in either direction mm-hmm. and and I as your mentor I'm going to teach you the the skills or I'm going to try to help guide you through that process mm-hmm. that that might be a way to do it yeah yeah I think that's right I think yeah there's so many hard things with like training somebody or ourselves becoming good at picking research questions and yeah, being respectful enough of what's been done and taking the good from what's been done, but not letting it box in your thinking or yeah, defer to what's been done just because that's what's been done. I have a related question, but maybe yeah, I'm going to ask it and then we can decide if we want to defer it to a, another, <laughs> maybe I should just write a letter to the podcast. But the thing I have the hardest time with, with getting students to develop research questions that are good you know, to pursue is I try to tell them like bite off a lot less than you think you should. Like don't mm-hmm. try to ask the really, really big question all at once and do that in one study, but like break it up into multiple studies and start with the first step. But then when I say like, okay, simplify, get smaller and narrower, et cetera, sometimes they come back and I'm not actually, I don't remember a specific case of this, but like the feeling I have is that there's this trade off where they might come back with like a three-way interaction so it's like narrow in the sense of like it's this really really specific effect that's like really Mm. complicated and narrow in a sense but not in the sense that I meant um so I'm I have a hard time like expressing this like sweet spot of not being too grand but also not being too narrow and being simple but not yeah I don't know like and that's what I don't know how to well a I'm not sure if I'm right that that's what we should be aiming for but be if that is I don't know how to communicate that or train it or yeah do you know huh (laughs) I guess like I'm not I'm not sure what's happening in this scenario like this abstract scenario that you're describing where somebody like hears make this idea like really simple and comes to you with a three-way interaction like what's the what are they hearing well if I say like make it narrower like take take a really specific part of it and try to test that really well I think sometimes and again okay. this isn't an actual case I can think of but I feel like yeah, sometimes yeah, right. if I give the advice of like narrowing then it's not necessarily they're overshooting but they're interpreting narrow in a different way than I mean it or something like that right like and I know it's my fault like for not really communicating. controlled and precise or something or, rather than like I don't know it's not yeah I don't know maybe okay maybe it's not worth 
trying to solve my problem. Maybe it's an idiosyncratic problem, communication problem that I have. Maybe I actually don't know what I want, so nobody can please I, me I for mean, that. I mean, I have the same overall problem as you, which is like I have a very hard time trying to describe what the qualities of a good research question are. Yeah. And often like people I, will I'm do exactly sure what I ask, and I'm like, no, 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 no. that was, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that that's a general... I feel like that's a, a general phenomenon. I, I had a meeting with one of my grad students recently where I, like we were going over a manuscript and I, w- I w- looked at it. Uh, there was one section and he'd done it a certain way and I was like, you should do it this other way. And he just looks at me and he's <laughs> like, that's the way I had it the first yeah, time. Right. Before <laughs> change it to that. It's yeah. like, oh, fuck. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and we, en- we ended up sort of figuring out like where in the middle, but I, I felt bad about sort of putting him through that. Um, because uh, I, I think it was that I hadn't been clear enough the first time, and mm-hmm. so he had taken, he had just, he had made the horrible mistake of listening to me yeah. <laughs> and taking me at face value. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, sometimes um, I see, I, I catch those moments with my grad students where, like, uh, they'll be, like, diplomatic about something like that. So they'll be like, well, we, we talked about this before. And, and like, I just like would love to see like a side by side of what they say to me and what's like actually going on. In their mind. Yeah, right. <laughs> Where they're like, oh, my God. Yeah. Alexa, I know. Cool. Well, uh, hopefully we've helped uh, a tough love type mentor, I guess. Um, I don't know. Maybe. Um, I think this this issue, maybe we should... I mean, if people have letters about that in particular, and, and maybe, Samin, if you think of, uh, didn't we, like, our first letter, or one of our letters early on was, like, when we were trying to get things jump-started, like, you wrote a letter, and then we pretended we didn't know who'd written it, so, yeah, but so I don't Samin, if you want to. <laughs> You're not supposed to reveal it. Yeah, I actually, I, it wasn't just that we needed letters, it was also that I don't want people to know that I wrote it. <laughs> okay. Um, well, hopefully it's been enough time then. I'm sorry. No, 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 it's fine. No, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> but if you if you want to turn this into a letter in the future, but also <laughs> people listening, I think this topic of like coming up with research questions and working with students or collaborators or mentors is super interesting. So, so if you're listening and you have a, a comment or a question about that or just a question about anything else that you want us to read on a future podcast, uh, listeners, you can reach us. Letters at the blackcodepodcast.com is our email address. Um, we are on Twitter at blackcoatpod. We're on uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash blackcoatpod. We've got an Instagram account, instagram.com slash blackcoatpod. We've got a website, www.theblackcoatpodcast.com. Blah, blah, blah. All this stuff. We're everywhere. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, just iTunes. turn on your computer and the black goat will appear. Mm-hmm. Yes, our, with our brand new logo. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Okay, so for our for our main topic today, we wanted to talk about conflicts of interest, which I think is a super interesting topic because I really feel like in as researchers, we don't talk about this very much, right? So if you, there are like a couple ways it sort of comes up. Like if you, sometimes when you, like submit something to a journal there might be like a little box you check or a form sometimes like I have to take this annual conflict of interest training for my university but it's 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 similar to like the the city human subjects training is that it's about knowing regulations it's not about actual ethics or principles um and I feel like there's a vast uncharted territory of conflicts of interest for researchers 
that uh, that doesn't get talked about very much except in these sort of very narrow regulatory ways or else like this kind of broad diffuse discussion. So we we all, the three of us read, and we'll link these in the show notes, we read a couple of articles. Um, and I wanted to start with uh, um, a quote from Dennis Thompson who wrote a pretty heavily cited article in the New England Journal of Medicine that came out in 93. Dennis Thompson is a um, he's actually a political scientist, but he's been involved a lot in both government ethics and regulatory ethics, and including in, in biomedicine. Um, but so, so the Thompson article, I think, is really is a really good place to start because it starts with a definition and it sort of goes through like what is a conflict of interest and, and why should we care? And so the, the definition that he gives in, in this article um, is a conflict of interest is a set of conditions in which professional judgment concerning a primary interest, such as a patient's welfare or the validity of research, tends to be unduly influenced by a secondary in- interest, such as financial gain. And I think there, there's a few things that, mm-hmm. um, that, that are sort of worth just sort of highlighting from this. One is that he's defining conflict of interest as a situation, not as a mental state and not as actual influence observed or inferred, right? He's saying it's a, it's a set of conditions the second and the second thing about it is that um, he's defining these concepts of a primary interest, which is what you're supposed to be about, like valid and uh, research, valid research, and then a secondary interest like financial gain. And and he notes in the article that this makes it different from some ethical dilemmas where there's like two good principles you're trying mm-hmm. to figure out. You know, like you know, an example of that in research might be open data transparency versus protecting patient privacy or, or subject privacy, which are there. It's like two good things and it's a dilemma. Sometimes you have to figure it out. And he's saying this is a little bit different because there's a primary interest and a secondary interest. And so they're not, they're already not starting on equal footing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I really, I really like the, the Thompson article and the framing about situations because I think that already cuts through a lot of interesting things about like why you know why is it for example that when somebody says no 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 like I have this interest but it didn't influence my judgment why it is that I never find that particularly uh, compelling <laughs> or in fact sometimes I actually find, think people are less credible when they say that mm-hmm. like if I'm reading a product review and someone says the company sent me uh, a free sample of this I'm like, great, they're disclosing and they're saying, but I would never let it influence my judgment. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just like, oh, now I'm suspicious because mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's like you have so little self-insight right. um, that you, you really think you can know that. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's um, in the, the Thompson article, he also talks about how the recognition of that is sort of like key to um, conflict of interest regulation, right? Because you have to um, you have to acknowledge that that situation could influence you and you're not necessarily going to know when it does so you just have to avoid those circumstances entirely right or not necessarily avoid them but you have to do something right address yeah. them i guess yeah yeah and also there's the perception of that even if even if you could know that in your specific case in this instance it didn't influence your judgment which i agree you can't but even if you could there's still the problem that other people can't know that and so you have to respect their concern about the potential for conflict of interest mm-hmm. yeah yeah right so he talks about like the that you know one reason is it might actually undermine you but even even if it didn't that you know and he's talking in a medical context but i think this very much applies to, to sort of research i mean he's mostly talking 
medical practice, but he also does talk about medical research. But I think for us, this applies very much that like it, you know, the public trust and confidence or our audience's trust and confidence in us is really important. And so, you know, whether or not it influences you, the appearance of a conflict can can undermine not just an individual researcher, but if if people believe conflicts are commonplace and, and you know, sort of unmitigated, it can have this collective negative effect on a research community, on a whole enterprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, which is interesting because, so his um, emphasis on like the situation and the circumstances, when I, so we also read the, um, the Greenwald art- article, which I think was 2009, mm-hmm. um, so not a terribly long time ago. Um, and one thing I was surprised by from that was just that, like he points out that there's basically no one that addresses this. So there's like very little instruction on when these circumstances arises um, and when we should be like alerted to a conflict of interest that we have to address. Um, But there are, yeah, a lot of situations where that does happen. Um, So maybe we could talk a little bit about like the situations where that's sort of like likely to arise for us. I don't know if we want to start getting into like what things constitute conflicts of interest because um, yeah, we have to. We can't do this. <laughs> so so we're going to be them. those people like that. Yeah. yeah we have well, so to. Let's, the, the let's start with. Person let, who's willing let, to say what a conflict of let, Let's let Tony Greenwald start. So this was a, the, an article by Tony Greenwald in, was it Psych Science, I think? Or the, I think it was perspectives in one of the or something journals. like that. Perspectives, yeah. So an article by Tony Greenwald, which we'll also link. And, and he talks about sort of four, um, they're not specifically conflicts, but sort of four roles kind of where, where there can be conflicts. So he talks about when we're gatekeepers, like editors, um, and, and the specific example he gives, he says there's a sort of obvious case of like you might decide a manuscript because you like it or it favors your own research or whatever. But he says there's this indirect issue of like that editors have the power mm-hmm. to choose reviewers and you, you could choose reviewers who produce an outcome you want. And he talks about as reviewers when we have certain, you know, interests in we like research or not like research or, or we know the researcher or whatever. He talks about a- expert witnesses and then he, he talks about sort of like personal desires for advancement and having your past work validated and that kind of thing. Right. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, so so he those are sort of four kind of roles or ca- categories of situations. I mm-hmm. mean. I would throw, you know, if we're just going to throw out potential conflicts of interest, I think one that's common in medicine is when you're commercializing research products, right? So you're you're creating drugs, you're creating medical devices. I think in psychology, you know, there are people that do that, but it, it's, you know, I think the the psychology version, and this is really, maybe this is where it's going to get a little controversial. <laughs> yeah, no, but I think, look, books speaking tours, nonprofits, like there are all these things that we can do. So we don't necessarily create like physical products, but or there consulting. are like, another one. or consulting. Yeah. Like we create information and there are ways to monetize information. And, um, these are in the, the definition that, that, uh, that Thompson gives, these are other, these are secondary interests. I, one of the things that also helped me, I don't remember if this was in the Thompson article, but I, I've seen this in reading about conflicts of interest that was really helpful was like there was some guideline somewhere that just explicitly said, look, conflicts of interest are not inherently a bad thing. And in fact, conflicts of interest 
can arise from us doing things we ought to be doing. So like we, we ought to be like bringing our research to the world and, and it can be a good thing to write a book or to give speaking tours, right? And so the, the, the idea that some people get affronted if you even say you might have a conflict of interest is like, no, these are situations that arise when we do more than one thing. And the, so it's not an affront to say you have a conflict of interest. What, what you have to do is you have to recognize and manage them. And yeah. I, I really like that framing. Well, I think like not inherently a bad thing is vague. So I think they're not inherently a sign that anybody did anything wrong, of course. Like, and that's important to point out. But I think they are inherently complicated and, and raise problems. Like, I think Absolutely. that's just what yeah. it is to, to have mm-hmm. a conflict of interest. So, yeah, I think... It's rare that that someone I would say yes there is a conflict here but I'm not at all worried about it like I think I as soon as there's a conflict I'm a, at least a little bit worried about it but that doesn't mean anybody did anything wrong and that we should right. always that we should set it up so that we never have to deal with that problem that would not be good but we do yeah. have to deal with it when it arises okay so just to be clear I am not at all against um, talking about which things constitute conflict of interest. <laughs> and I actually would like you to spell out to me, like, when is it a conflict of interest for a reviewer when they're reviewing it? Or an editor when they're Yeah, I thought paper. Tony Greenwald had a really interesting strategy for himself when he is a reviewer of a paper where he has a commi- theoretical commitment to one side or the other, whatever, for or against. He says, mm-hmm. I think, if I remember right, that he um, identifies himself in his reviews and says uh-huh. what, what his like bias is or whatever but at least i mean even just identifying yourself if you're known to be on a particular side of a debate or hold a particular theoretical position i think that's a cool way to test it and obviously some people are in a, a tougher position to identify themselves but like most people who are like strongly associated with a theory or whatever are pro- probably have tenure and i think are in a position where they should probably be comfortable doing that if they're going to review a paper that they have a, have a pre-commitment to being in favor of or against the results of that mm-hmm. paper. So I think that's a cool way to maybe help mitigate it a little bit as a reviewer. Mm-hmm. The editor thing is complicated. I think I've had some conversations with authors at some points about like whether a particular handling editor should handle their paper if they've published in that domain and might be you know partial to one result or another. And I think I hadn't thought about it enough um, recently, like until now. I think it's a really complicated question because often like those editors have the most expertise in that area and so on. But it's true that like a certain amount of um, having taken a position for a theory or something like that should maybe disqualify you from handling papers on that so topic. I feel like it gets so complicated, right? Because, okay, let's say it, it seems clear if like you're somebody who has really like built their career on a specific position or a specific theory and then somebody writes a paper that like challenges your theory directly mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. but like i have opinions yeah. about a lot of research yeah. and is that does that make me a non-objective i think it does make me a non-objective reviewer of that research but we don't usually consider that a conflict of interest yeah, yeah i don't i don't think that that i wouldn't consider that just having an opinion to be a conflict it might be it's another kind of issue that has to be thought about and dealt with but the i mean this is part of why i really like thompson's framing is that an interest is a situation and it, it can be it's defined relative to things that you value but so like if if you value your reputation and if your decision on a manuscript is going to have an effect on your reputation then you could argue that that's a form of an interest and and there may be a conflict between that and objective evaluation uh-huh, um right. i mean i think that the a lot of practical 
a lot of times when we call, call it a conflict of interest and a lot of practical regulation of it tends to be either when the interest is money, like financial, or when the interest is some kind of nepotistic interest, like a, a family member or a close friend or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 so, yeah, and so I think just like, well, I have prior opinions, like we should be worried about bias, but I wouldn't call that like a privately held prior yeah. opinion. I wouldn't call that a conflict of interest. I'd just say that's like a thing. And that's that the review process is kind of supposed to be able to handle that. Yeah, um, I agree. Get multiple reviews. But I do think there's, it's a spectrum. And I think it's really hard to know where to draw the line. Like if. If your theory is named after yourself, okay, then you shouldn't handle. Yeah, right. But what if you're the grad, you're a former grad student of the person after whom the theory is named? Or what if, you know, uh-huh. I think there are, I've now had a couple of cases of authors, like, feeling that an editor had a bias against their findings because of the author's own research and things like that. And I think that's super complicated. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what the answer is, but I think it deserves more thought. I had uh, lunch recently with uh, Wim Hofste, who's a personality psychologist. He's like in his 80s. And at the end of our lunch, he said, I can't remember what I asked him, but his answer was, I'm getting to an age where I'm trying to avoid nepotism. (laughs) And I thought, oh, okay, so 82 (laughs) is when that happens. (laughs) But yeah, I think it's, there is a lot, I think nepotism is, and, and also like, so there's, you know, you have personal opinions about research topics or methods or things like that, but people also have personal opinions about authors and labs and institutions mm-hmm. and departments, and they yeah. often don't consider those as potential sources of bias or conflict or things like that. And yeah, I think it's not exactly nepotism if it's not someone you know personally or have collaborated with or whatever, but you could still have like huge yeah, biases. You could be like a fan of somebody. Right, right. Um, also, when is somebody a close friend? Yeah, I think for me, the line now, and I haven't always applied this in the past since I've rejected some of your papers, Alexa, but (laughs) the line I would use is like, if my name was, if I accepted it and my name was listed as the handling editor, it would look like an unfair situation to people. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's a good, that's a really good starting point. and, And that is like disclosure is often one of the mm-hmm. remedies for conflicts of interest it's it's one of the more common ones that you just you let people know and i i think having that hypothetical disclosure is, a, is yeah i think that's a really useful heuristic if people knew everything that i know would they view it as a problem and and if they did um the, or if, if you think they would or they might then you know at the very least you should disclose and mm-hmm. and disclose maybe in in actually doing it but also like disclose to someone who has who themselves has no interest and they can judge right mm-hmm. so the idea that we can judge our own conflicts of interest seems like it seems uh sensitive but not specific or maybe i have that backwards but that um when you think it's a conflict of interest it probably is but when you don't <laughs> it doesn't yeah. mean it's not you know mm-hmm. and the number of times i've like told an editor that I have a p- potential conflict and they're like, oh yeah, I don't care. So now I actually yeah. don't leave it up to the editors. I just, if I think I might have a conflict, I just take myself off. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like people, even third parties are not, don't take these conflicts seriously enough. Yeah. So let me, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about financial yeah, I conflicts talk about that of interest too. because I, I feel like this is something there are, you know, 
I feel like there's a lot of, and I don't know in practice day to day, I know in like biomedicine and, and pharmaceuticals and that kind of thing, there's a lot of shenanigans, but there's also like a lot of conversation. Like people are aware of the issue and, and, and at least there's that. And I, I feel like in psychology, the kinds of things that we do that have financial, that involve financial interests, like consulting, like book deals, speaking tours, starting nonprofits, things like that, there's very little discussion. And because, you know, as we've talked about, like interests can can get into the weeds and, and there is no perfect solution. Um, and Thompson even talks about this. He's, and he says, look, just because you can't solve every conflict of interest doesn't mean you should, shouldn't try to solve some, right? right. And, and so, so like, I, I, I reject the idea that, like, oh, because it's so complicated, we should, just shouldn't do anything. But then we don't have – it's also because it's complicated, we need regulations or norms or some of both. Mm-hmm. And so, so let, me, let me give you – let me give an example – um, this was a long time ago, um, like at least 10 years ago, probably longer. I was contacted by a journalist um, who wanted me to comment on a story they were working on about a study. Did they want to accuse, and, you to accuse Mueller of sexually harassing you? Yes. No. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, this is, we're, this is two weeks before I this know. comes out. People will have forgotten about that. Um, anyway, yeah. I've practically forgot about it. It was yesterday. By the way, we're recording on Halloween, October 31st, two weeks. Anyway, whatever. Okay. So this journalist contacts me, wants me to comment on a study. Okay. You know, um, I'm like, well, I want to look at the study uh, um, before I comment on it. So I go into Google Scholar or PsychInfo or something, and I look up the author, um, and I can't find the study. Um, and so I'm like, okay, maybe it's coming out. So I contact the journalist. I say, do you have a copy of the study? And they say, no, all I have is a press release. So, okay, first of all, <laughs> journalist, bad, writing only about a press release without reading the study, but whatever. Um, so, uh, so I contact the author of the study, um, and they tell me that, uh, in fact, the study hasn't been published yet. Um, it's still in the review process. And that, uh, um, but they can send me, and they, they're telling me all this, like th- this person is not trying to hide anything. So this is why I say we need norms, right? This person was not acting furtively like they're trying to hide something. But it turns out the press release came from their book publisher. Um, they, this person had a book under contract. The book publisher was promoting the study because the book was going to be about the conclusions of the study that had not yet been accepted in peer review. And so I start thinking, okay, like, what if the study gets rejected um, and and the book publisher wants to promote this study and wants to market this book as being about peer-reviewed scientific research? Um, what if the review process turns up something that changes the conclusions of the study um, and you're already under contract to write a book that advances a certain conclusion? Um, and this was this, like I said, this was a long time ago. This was before. This was re- very early in my career. I was still, I think, a f- pretty newish assistant professor, and so and the the field had not been having a lot of the I think bigger meta scientific and how should we work discussions we're having now. And, but I just remember at the time feeling super uneasy about the whole thing that like and and having these questions and and I don't believe that when the the study did finally come out in the journal, I don't believe that it. Um, uh, had any kind of a conflict of interest disclosure. The book came out, it did very well, etc. Um, and yeah, and so so this this is the sort of thing. And I, I now that I'm attuned to this, I see this happening 
a lot. Yeah. And um, I've seen this happen multiple times since then, where a, a book comes out, there's a study by the book's author that you can put the timing together and knowing how long books take to write and knowing how long studies take in the review process, you can guess that the book was under contract when the study or paper was in the review process, um, yet it has no conflict of interest disclosure or anything else. Yeah. And I, this just makes me really uneasy. Yeah, I agree. I think that book contracts, um, speaking chores, things like that. I think the, the norm should be that those should be declared as conflicts of interest. And there are, of course, going to be gray areas. Like, what if you know that a book contract is coming, but you don't have it yet? Or what if it's it was five years ago and you're still getting royalties from it? Or mm-hmm. there, there are going to be gray areas. But I think we need to move the norm in the direction of disclosing those things. Um. Yeah, I don't know why we haven't done that and why we don't take these things seriously. And I'm guilty of this too. So I don't disclose my speaking fees, which are minimal but still if i say that people should disclose their speaking i don't i don't charge a fee to speak i just want to be clear (laughs) but like in a typical year i might get like one or two thousand dollars uh honoraria or things like that for giving talks that i didn't ask for but people give me um and i think i should start disclosing those and it's annoying i'd have to like go through all my emails and figure out like did i get 250 dollars for this talk or what you know and like add it up but yeah, I think that's a reasonable thing to expect me to do. And I think I should do it. And I'm going to, I think I'm going to start doing it. Um, so I think one question is, yeah, like how much money is enough that we should disclose it? What about like income from editing? Should I disclose that? For some reason, I feel like I don't, I don't need to disclose that, but I do need to disclose money for speaking. Um, and the other one I don't really understand is grants because obviously like the grant is supposed to pay for the research, but it also pays summer salary and okay, you can say, well, we're not getting paid during those months, but how many of us actually work harder in the summer when we have a grant compared to when we don't, we all work. The, like, I don't mm-hmm. think I work harder the months that I have mm-hmm. summer salary than I do the months that I don't. So mm-hmm. the summer salary is icing. I mean, I can't count on it. It's not there most years. So when I do get a month here or there, it's like, cool. That feels like the same mm-hmm. that an honorarium for speaking fee feels. Um, but maybe because it's technically just paying for my labor that no one else is paying for, then it's not a, a financial conflict the same way that like free money is or like, but consulting yeah. is still speaking, mm-hmm. it's paying for for effort and labor that isn't yeah. paying for otherwise. I don't know. I don't know where to draw so, those lines. So yeah, well, and this is this is why I feel like there needs to be more discussion because because there is no perfect solution. You have to decide what things do we care about and where are the thresholds, right? And and like when I do my university COI regulations training every year that I have to check little boxes and say I did them, you know, there are dollar amounts, right? So if you have a consulting mm-hmm. gig, if I have a consulting gig that's related to my research and I'm making a, above a certain threshold then I have to disclose it to my university below that I don't. Now, thresholds are arbitrary. We talked about this, I think, two episodes ago, right? Like, thresholds are arbitrary. But it's, like, it's it's a thing. And so maybe if you make, like, $800 in honoraria, that's not a big deal. But if you're making 10000 a speaking gig, um, it is. I don't know. But but it's, like, you can't. Like, other everyone would have their own threshold and, and whatever. So you need to talk about that. And, and I also feel like the things that everybody knows versus things that you wouldn't know, right? So the, the like, 
everybody knows that or everybody within the field has some general understanding that like you have to publish to get jobs tenure etc and so do you need to disclose every time um you know i need to have pubs to get tenure mm -hmm. and put that in the footnote of every paper probably not um do you need to disclose Summer salary, well, you do have to say that you have a grant. Um, Americans understand summer salary. Europeans have a different system. I've talked to some Europeans who've been surprised. They're like, holy shit, you can make an extra third of your salary for getting a grant? It's like, yep, we're American entrepreneurs, whatever. But at least when the American system, people understand, right? But again, it's sort of like it, things that everybody knows, you don't need to disclose. If they're true of everybody and everybody knows them, like you need pubs to get tenure, um, I would put a lower priority on disclosing that than I would something like a consulting gig, which not everybody has consulting related to their research, and you, there'd be no way of knowing it um, unless the person disclosed or, or did something else to mitigate it. Mm -hmm. So for like book deals or speaking tours, do you think people should disclose the amount about, let's say they're above the threshold that we decide, should they have to disclose how much they're getting? I, I don't know that... Um, I think if there was a, I mean, I think that's ultimately that's up to having a norm to decide, right? But mm -hmm. I, I, I kind of think if they're above, a, if there's a threshold where people decide collectively this is enough to matter, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe there can um, be different thresholds. So you can say I'm in tier one <laughs> speaking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm in tier two. I like that. Yeah. But also like, and uh, we, I mean, we should talk a little bit about remedies, right? So disclosure is kind of the most common one, but there are, there are other ones, right? So you could... Um, I mean, in some sense, like pharmaceutical companies doing clinical trials have a huge financial secondary interest in the outcomes. And so we have this massive regulatory system through the FDA for, for sort of pharmaceutical trials to try to procedurally shield the process from being biased by the fact that pharmaceutical companies really, really want it to come out one way. Mm -hmm. um, and so so maybe there are other things like when people have speaking fees or book deals or nonprofits that, you know, depend on the or, or for profits that, that depend on, you know, that will get different amounts of money if the results come out one way or the other. You know, maybe we should have a higher threshold for demanding pre-registration and registered reports or demanding that they. Con that, that you shouldn't maybe sometimes we should say you shouldn't do that research yourself what you at a certain threshold at a certain amount of financial interest you should be contracting with somebody else to do the research yeah. for you i mean i think there's I think, it, it's it's a it's got to ramp up with the amount yeah, of secondary well, and interest. i think we rely too much on disclosure when recusal yeah. is often possible so same with like editors or reviewers like just don't do the thing that you have a conflict with it's it's not really enough to disclose in a lot of cases like mm -hmm. like if i was handling alexis paper but i just disclosed it i don't yeah, like it's better than if i didn't no but like really. still yeah i should just not handle alexis paper right um, and then like the the readers are in this weird position where they're trying to figure out like whether you made a fair decision or not and they don't have the information to really decide that mm -hmm. yeah that's kind of I, I think that disclosure is helpful in many cases, but I think that in in a lot of cases it's not really enough. It doesn't really solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Thompson talks about this, that, like, people often don't know what to do with disclosures. They don't know what they mean. Mm -hmm. You know, that the disclosure only works if people are know what to do with the information and then actually do it mm -hmm. right. And so... 
like people might under discount or they might just be confused why are you telling me this like oh mm-hmm. you you know the editor you know uh went on a vacation with the <laughs> reviewer you know yeah, whatever yeah, exactly. like you know yeah, yeah and there's some research i don't know if it's replicable but that suggests that it could actually increase the person's trust in the discloser because they're like oh you're being so uh-huh. honest i can trust you yeah right um, right Mm-hmm. But I think I still prefer disclosure to no disclosure. But I just think sometimes people let themselves off the hook by stopping at disclosure when they could do more. Yeah. So what I mean, this this issue that Greenwald talks about at the beginning, right? He sort of goes through and says, here's this like vague, weak, anemic statement that APA has. And here's the complete lack of anything that APS mm-hmm. has and whatever. Like what would and, you know, and Thompson talks about the different like ways you know so he talks about like who who should deal with conflicts of interest you know it could be like the individual it's up to the individual it could be a profession regulates it could be government regulates and it's again it's sort of like kind of depends on how severe and whatever but twitter twitter mobs can regulate you know like but what what would be like how would we even go about doing this let's say that we decided that okay for psych for research psychologists um, you know, having these kinds of, let's just stick to financial interests for now. Having secondary financial interests associated with our work is something that we want to go beyond just sort of like voluntary individual disclosure at their discretion. Like, who would and could do that? I mean, I think there's a lot of parallels with other transparency movements, like open science movement, like the peer reviewers openness initiative. So reviewers some reviewers have a standard standard language in their reviews that say you know like i i asked for the data to be available and things like that um you could make it part of your standard review that you say like i always ask for our authors to disclose financial conflicts of interest above a certain amount or just period um and make that a standard part of your review you could a journal could decide that they're going to make it a standard part of the decision process or just a policy that these things count and you are obliged to report them so it could be yeah like a bottom-up or top-down just like a lot of the other pushes for transparency mm-hmm. and i think we can also change the norms if some of us start disclosing these things i think it'll make it easier for people to ask to demand that of others yeah right yeah right um yeah it's interesting that you made that parallel because there was something that stood out to me in the Greenwald article so the his fourth domain is like you have a conflict of interest with yourself um, because you have this like yeah motivation to basically a confirmation bias Um, and he was talking about how that can like lead us to do things like selective reporting Um, and then his like solution is he says do not in italics do these things (laughs) 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 I just like really like that so much he's Mm. um he would be so happy if now. he was on Twitter and could see that <laughs> <laughs> we're finally doing something about it. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was a really interesting, right, like the last bullet in his article, he kind of like in 2009, sort of two, th- two years before yeah, this right. kind of exploded on the scene, he was kind of mm-hmm. saying, you know, these personal motivational things, which, you know, may or may not be this other definition of interest, right? But these personal motivational factors could lead you to be hack well, and selectively <laughs> report. And as you guys know, he was saying that in the 70s when he was at yeah. the Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Cool. Well, yeah, I, uh, 
Yeah, I don't know. I I do feel like the 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 like. I mean, I, it was funny reading the end of his article because on the one hand, it was like, do not do that. But on the other, having read the Thompson articles, like, yeah, don't. And plus knowing where we stand now, it's like personal injunctions are, are not yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the, the no grassroots thing is interesting. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. But like, I don't know. It's hard for me to imagine. I mean, maybe like, you know, if APS or APA said like we're going to do a task force on conflicts of interest and we're going to come up with a set of standards and then journals can declare that we've bought into this set of standards or something like that maybe that's closer to like what the top initiative was or something we should write to the collabora publication committee and ask if they could develop a policy on this there we go yeah. Well, this this podcast has raised a lot more questions than it's answered. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's good, right? Don't yeah, I think do so. not I think it do actually. it, Alexa. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I think we're are we ready to wrap up? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Sure. All right. Thanks everybody for listening to the Black Goat, and we'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.